2: Before we begin, I just want to explain. This is actually an episode of a show called Pardon Me, another damn impeachment show, question mark, which is a new program we've developed. I, Colin McEnroe, am hosting it, and my team is making it, but it's not really our regular show. It runs on Saturdays at noon. It's also available as a podcast, but we thought we'd give you a taste of it here. It's not your typical impeachment show. So listen to this one, fall in love, and then just keep listening to Pardon Me. I kind of can't believe that this is episode five of Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show, question mark. How time flies while you're impeaching, I guess. It just doesn't seem possible. But I think one reason that it's episode five is that we, unlike some of our competitors, not to be invidious in any way, not to cast asparagus at anyone else, but we, unlike some of our competitors, have continued to put out episodes through the holiday season, Certain other impeachment shows, like one that rhymes with Shmubicon, another one that is hosted by someone whose name sounds sort of like Shmezra Shmine. Um they just went dark on December 20th. You can't do that. So anyway, we, we've kept going and we're proud of it. So we are calling this episode Jim Jordan the Vice Principal Who Haunts Your Nightmares. Because we're going to talk about clothing in one of the segments. We've actually, it's something I've wanted to do for a long time. There are certain really terrific fashion critics, including Vanessa Friedman from the New York Times, who really probe the semiotics of dress, the semiotics of fashion, what kinds of statements and armors and status markers there are. And so she's going to explain all that to us. And she's going to explain why Jim Jordan doesn't wear a jacket. Although I don't think she really does know why. Only Jim Jordan knows Knows that So there's all of that. We're also going to talk to Michael Gerhardt, one of the four wise witnesses who appeared before the Judiciary Committee, one of the four law professors. We're going to hear some more factoids from Kyone Wolf. We're going to have an opinion piece for the first time ever by Bill Useman, a short sort of opinion essay. And I'll just quickly bring you up to date. It is the middle of the holiday stretch, but still. Stuff is happening. Susan Collins from Maine has become the second Republican senator to criticize Majority Leader Mitch McConnell for saying that he was in total coordination with the White House. That's disturbing to her. It was also disturbing to Lisa Murkowski from Alaska a few days before that. So here's the thing about that as we go forward. You know, it's one thing for Collins to say that she's uncomfortable with that or it seems inappropriate or that for Lisa Murkowski to say something similar, that she's disturbed. I think that was the verb she used. It doesn't mean anything until they make it a deal breaker, right? Until one of them or somebody else, you know, it's you, know, you could probably think, about who the other possibilities are, Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, until one of them says, this can't go forward until we straighten this out. You know, we can't proceed until we have a clear understanding of what our duties are. And that, meanwhile, is going to come up in the first interview today. So but before we do that, I want to just mention that if you like this show and you haven't heard some of the previous episodes, go back and listen. I heartily encourage you to listen to one, two, three, and four and some of the web extras we've got. They're all there as part of the podcast feed. If you're on iTunes and you wanna write a little review or do something else that might call attention to us or Just call up your grandmother and mention that we exist. Anything that you might do would be very much appreciated. Our first guest today is Michael Gerhardt, the Burton Craig University Distinguished Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina School of Law in Chapel Hill, the author of several books, including Impeachment What Everyone Needs to Know. And if his name is ringing a bell, it's because he was one of the four scholars who appeared before the House Judiciary Committee to explain kind of the legal theory behind impeachment. So, first of all, Michael Gerhardt. I would assume that this has made you either a minor or a major celebrity in certain circles since that day.
1: I, I don't know. I mean, I think it probably did raise my profile for better or worse.
2: So one of the things that you were doing, well, it would be interesting just to pause and say on that day, obviously you were there to talk to the House Judiciary Committee and to educate them on what you knew and understood about this. But I mean, I assume... There was also sort of a public education component of this. I mean, the nation's watching. You have a chance to explain, I think, also to people in general, how this all works. Was that consciously a part of your mission on that day?
1: I I think it was. I mean, I I actually thought my most useful role would be to try to educate people, particularly non-lawyers, about the law of impeachment. So that was my mindset going in. And and it was hopefully an objective i was able to fulfill but i i understood that i was going to try and perform that role in a very heated partisan atmosphere and so I, I just had of course to be ready for that
2: well let's hear now from one of the people that i think you failed to educate on that particular day
0: it's a witch hunt it's a sham it's a hoax uh, nothing was done wrong it's a scam it's something that shouldn't be allowed And it's a very bad thing for our country and you're trivializing impeachment. And I tell you what, someday there'll be a Democrat president and there'll be a Republican House and I suspect they're going to remember it.
2: So uh, your words of reason did not reach the ears of the president. I don't think that surprises you. But it's sort of part of a phenomenon here, right? We now are having a national conversation that's kind of bifurcated into groups of people who feel one way about the legitimacy of the process and and another group that feels very differently about it. And whatever you were trying to do to spread information and clarity, it, it is opposed by a lot of people who are really trying to to make this seem like an illegitimate process. I don't know, what's your reaction, to even to that guy talking?
1: Well, I think your description of the dynamic is exactly on point. I think it's right. And this created a, an atmosphere, and we're all now living in it, or helped to kind of further the atmosphere, expand the atmosphere, where some of us, at least I as a teacher and scholar, among others, are trying to talk about the law in a responsible fashion, and others are simply trying to change the subject or divert, or distract, or confuse people. So when the president issues all those derogatory terms directed at impeachment, they're all wrong. There's no merit to any of them, but they make political sense for him. And so for those who are attached to the president, they simply accept that without thinking, or I should say, looking further into what actually the law of impeachment is and whether or not it's being used or followed in the present situation in a responsible way.
2: I noticed that some of the rhetoric that I hear these days, I, I've already mentioned many times on this show that every time somebody says that this is a coup, I try to explain that it's the opposite of a coup. It's a pretty right. difficult, unwieldy, high bar to clear process that stands in our Constitution so we don't have coups. But the latest thing, the, the other one that you, I'm sure you hear it all the time, too, is, is an attempt to reverse or overturn the results of the 2016 election. And once again, it seems to me that this is kind of the opposite of the truth.
1: Yes, it's the opposite of the truth. It's opposite of the law. And it is a good example of of the the problem, so to speak, of the president's trying to confuse things and and change the subject. It doesn't reverse the 2016 election, first of all, because if uh, President Trump were actually impeached, convicted, and removed, Vice President Michael Pence would become president, not Hillary Clinton. So that pretty much should do away with any idea that this is reversing the election. But the second thing is that election also, and the next election, 2018, also brought into power the Democrats who are currently in the majority in the House. So those elections all have to have force as well. You does not get to pick and choose which election matters. They all matter. And those elections help put together the situation, the dynamic that we're now experiencing with the Democratic majority in the House and Republican in the White House. I don't think party really ultimately explains all this, I think the president's actions do. And so the president is trying to sort of point the finger at the Democrats, saying they're the problem, but I think it's almost a matter of projection where he's actually saying things about them that could equally be applied to himself. His defense is largely one of distraction, pointing the finger somewhere else, and largely based on a kind of fictional or non-factual basis, which is somehow he, he did everything perfectly. He did not. And I think one has to simply read the record to know that.
2: Right. And there's a way in which... Well, first of all, there's a way in which it seems like an awful lot of fussing and whining about a process which partly because of its constitutional construction has placed Republicans very much in control of the next step, the trial in the Senate. And as you suggest, removal would result in the ascension of another Republican president. If he were somehow or other implicated in the Ukraine stuff, he'd have plenty of time to make sure there was a Republican vice president replacing him. I mean, the, the danger – the part- Partisan danger here, which is all one of the sides talks about, seems to be very minimal.
1: I think that's exactly right. And I, I do think it also reflects, and this is quite consistent with what you've been saying, it reflects the extent to which we might all be living in two different realities. The president lives in a reality, apparently, where he, he is able to kind of convince his base, feed into their fears, and basically talk about how you know Democrats are evil, they're up to a coup and everything else, and everything he does is perfect, even if it's not in alignment with the law. The world I live in, the law matters. I mean, I am a law professor at the end of the day. And so there's no principle in constitutional law that allows a president to ignore the Constitution and to ignore the law. The president's authority has to be derived from either the Constitution or a policy Congress has enacted that he's enforcing. When he asked for that favor, he wasn't following the law made by Congress or the Constitution. And when he kept trying to obstruct an investigation into it, he was violating the Constitution, which means what he was doing was unconstitutional. That's the law. But you can't ignore it. simply pretending it's not there.
2: There's a way in which when we get to that issue of obstruction and just failure to cooperate with basic kinds of requests for witnesses and information, it does seem as though the law is clear, although you kind of wish the rulings went a little higher. I mean, we now, within the last few days, have another district court ruling on one of the potential witnesses, a guy who's not that well-known, Deputy National Security Advisor Charles Kupperman. He had a lawsuit asking a court to determine which prevailed, a congressional subpoena or the White House's instruction not to testify, obviously this mm-hmm. is key if they want to get Bolton, if they want to get Pompeo, if they, if they want to get Mulvaney, but basically the court just sort of mooted the whole thing, right? They just said, well, right. you're, I, we don't have to decide, or I was one judge, I don't have to decide this.
1: That's right. It became moot in part because the House of Representatives withdrew the subpoena. And so there was nothing left at issue in the case without the subpoena still being in effect. There was really nothing left to litigate, so it became loot. But the problem is also that a president, and particularly those close advisors, are using the courts to delay any of the inquiry. The most important thing for lawyers, and as far as the law is concerned, is that a legislative subpoena is lawful. By definition, it's lawful. And so for the president to ignore it, defy it, and and compel others to do the same is illegal, And courts may not ultimately be in the position to reach any judgment on that because this is a matter of impeachment, which is left to the discretion of Congress. After all, the Constitution says the House has the sole power of impeachment. That means you don't need courts to make a decision about impeachment. The House does. So the dynamic here is relatively simple. The House has ordered something. The president's defied the order. The question is whether or not that's legal or not. It's not legal. And then there's the question whether it's impeachable. And I testify that it was
2: right i mean we do have and you're sort of suggesting if i understand that you know impeachment is so sui generis that typical rulings about subpoenas might not have quite the same status I mean, I'm thinking in particular, we already have a district court ruling from late November, where basically that whole argument was rejected with respect to former White House counsel Don McGahn. In 2008, we had a district court ruling, same thing. Harriet Myers, White House counsel, rejected that kind of absolute privilege argument. Do you think that impeachment as a process sits outside those other kinds of processes? I think it can be. It
1: can get kind of a legal morass or sort of confusion. But the fact is that if we take a step back and look at all the precedent that courts have decided, including all the decisions the Supreme Court has made on the power of subpoenas, even from legislatures, all the precedents are in support of what the Democrats have done, What the, because they do it in the name of the House. They have the power by virtue of the Constitution to run the House. And so as a result of that, there's no question they have the authority to issue the orders. And if we simply accept the precedents that have been decided for years and years and years, they all go in favor of the Democrats. What's also happening here is the president's trying to defy all that precedent, trying to get it all overturned. And that's helped create the mess we're in right now.
2: Well, it must be an interesting time to be you. I'm sure you get asked questions all the time. You probably can't go to a holiday party without that. But, I mean, now House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is doing something that a lot of us had not anticipated, which is delaying the transmission of the articles of impeachment to the Senate. Are there things that you can consult within precedent or within the Constitution to address her ability to do this?
1: Sure. So it ends up being relatively basic. So, again, the Constitution says the House has the sole power of impeachment. The Constitution also says that each chamber of Congress has its own – has power to determine the rules for their own proceedings. So when we combine the sole power of impeachment with the power to shape the rules of the House, that's all the House's authority – that's all the the authority the House needs to do what it's doing. It, It may control the timing of what it does. With respect to impeachment, one act involved in impeaching the president is to pass the resolution, which the House did, to impeach him. But the next move, which is to appoint the House managers, is left to the discretion of the House, and there's no timetable for it. That's what Speaker Pelosi is delayed. And as far as the Senate is concerned, the Senate rules govern what it may do, and the Senate rules themselves say, almost literally, that the Senate has to wait on the delivery of the articles from the House, they'll be physically walked over, and only once they get them is the Senate then entitled under its rules to proceed with its own proceedings.
2: So that tends to void a bunch of arguments that have been made recently that McConnell might be able to just start the trial, articles or no articles, or that he could set a deadline for the appointment of House managers and transmission. It sounds like he doesn't have that many options. I don't
1: think he has any of those options. I think that the rules, again, of the Senate govern until they are changed by at least a majority, if not a supermajority in the Senate. I don't see that happening at least yet. So Senator McConnell's got to accept and follow the rules of the Senate, which have been in place not just during Clinton's impeachment, but previously as well. So he doesn't have as complete discretion to do everything he might want to do, which is simply stop the impeachment process now or do, as you said, somehow put a time limit on it or anything else. There's no power he has to direct the House on what to do. Now, at the same time, there's no real power of the House to direct the Senate majority leader or the Senate to do anything in particular. And that really leaves Speaker Pelosi in this kind of almost narrow spot where she can govern the timing of her own process and perhaps drive the president crazy. But this but inevitably, she's going to have to pass it on to the Senate. And then the Senate has complete control
2: when she does. There's a, another party who gets involved, and uh, notwithstanding the, the idea of complete control, but there's another party who gets involved. That's Chief Justice John Roberts. He will preside. It's often not entirely clear to us what that means or how broad the scope of his presiding powers would be. But, I mean, based on your understanding and maybe what Rehnquist or anybody else did, what, what's your sense of how big a player Roberts can become in that scenario?
1: I don't think it's likely he'll take on any big role. The essential thing about the rules of the Senate is that any decision that the presiding officer makes about anything may be appealed to the Senate as a whole and is resolved by a majority vote. So wherever 51 senators are, whatever position they're in, they are the ones to control the process. The Chief Justice can make a ruling and maybe his prestige and the ruling itself could perhaps persuade at least 51 Senators to agree with him, but if 51 Senators don't agree with the Chief Justice, he's overruled.
2: You know, there's one thing that I had not understood until quite recently is that another thing that happens... I was certainly, you know, conscious during the Clinton trial, but I don't remember this part. Is that the senators actually have to swear a special oath? It's derived yeah. from the Constitution that the senators shall be on oath or affirmation when trying impeachments. The rules of the Senate say that they have to swear to do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws in all things pertaining to the trial of impeachment. Which I don't know. Once again, whether you know, there's been all this kind of pre-trial talk from McConnell about essentially not being impartial, and you know, not, not doing any of those things that are in that oath. Right. And you wonder, I don't know, can Roberts speak to them about what that oath means? And can he say, well, you know, that's not really what you're saying or doing right now doesn't really conform to the oath you swore a day or two ago?
1: I'm not sure Roberts can do that. Now, keep in mind, of course, that the Senate trial has not started. So Senator McConnell hasn't taken that second oath yet. But his declaration that he's not impartial, that he'll do whatever the president wants is rather stunning because it's the first time in American history where a majority leader in the Senate has declared before a presidential impeachment trial or any impeachment trial that he's not impartial and that he's gonna just do whatever the the subject of the trial wants. That's historic, it's never happened before. And that statement has undermined the integrity and perhaps even the legitimacy of the trial And you can see or hear some Republican senators now, one or two, beginning to question whether that was the smartest move. And what we're now actually not seeing is real important. It's all going on behind the scenes. That is the extent to which Republican senators are trying to convince the majority leader, look, you've got to kind of walk back a step or two. Remember, this is about our institutional integrity as well. Let's not make it harder for ourselves by casting away our impartiality.
2: I I want to ask you about one last thing. One other recent development is that Chief Justice Roberts did issue his end-of-the-year report on the state of the Mm -hmm. federal judiciary. One of the things that he does in that, and it takes us back to my first question to you when I asked you whether you considered part of your job that day Mm -hmm. in the House Judiciary Committee to educate the public about its own constitution and congressional processes and stuff like that, is you have Roberts saying basically the same thing, right? We've come to take democracy for granted and civic education has fallen by the wayside. I don't know whether he's sending a coded message about impeachment or whether he's kind of just jumping on a general trend. I think there is a sense we have that Americans don't understand their own government. What did you make of what he said and the timing of it?
1: That was a really good question. I I, I certainly think it's at least the latter. I certainly think it's at least the Chief Justice sort of being, being aware of what so many people right now are aware of. And that being the fact that civic education, particularly education about the Constitution, is not great. People either have not had that kind of education or they're ignoring it. It doesn't matter as much as it used to. So I think the Chief Justice, in trying to sort of remind people of the importance of the independence of the judiciary and its impartiality, also is trying to remind people that that's all part of an overall package of things That people need to learn about. What's the role of the courts? What's the role of the president? What's the role of Congress? I think one thing that's helped, let's say, degrade the understanding of the impeachment process and the Constitution is that the president himself denounced the legitimacy of this process and he's ignored laws in the course of it and ignored the Constitution. That's pretty clear. You can't point back to the Constitution or any particular law that justifies what he's doing with respect to any investigation by Congress against him. And so it will help, I think. I don't know if the chief is saying this, but it would help everyone to understand better, okay, well, how is the government supposed to operate? What are the jobs of the different people heading different branches? And maybe that will help us understand better why we see the conflicts we're seeing right now that step back is a really important one. It may or may not lead one to to agree with the president's conviction of removal, but at least it would lead one to better understand what's going on.
2: Let me just button that up with one final observation or question. So one of the things that he did was he he kind of went out of his way, it seemed, to tell a story that some of us know from the musical Hamilton about the Federalist Papers, about how Hamilton, Madison, and Jay had agreed to do all that stuff. And then John Jay becomes incapacitated after writing just a very few articles. And the reason, Robert's does make an effort to point this out, is that he struck in the forehead with a rock by a rioter. He says it's sadly ironic that John Jay's efforts to educate his fellow citizens about the framers' plan of government fell victim to a rock thrown by a rioter motivated by a rumor. You know, it seems to me he's trying to say something pretty specific there.
1: I I think you're you're right. I think he's sensing that there is, it used to be called a mobocracy, but at, at the extent to which mob is really sort of trying to drive things and and, and therefore also drown out any responsible talk about the Constitution. And as Chief Justice John Roberts certainly has an obligation. He obviously feels a duty to help educate people rather than simply allow this violence to go on. I mean, he's one of the highest ranking officials in the United States government, quite appropriately Chief Justice of the United States, and he's trying to say, look, law, reason need to control, not violence and, and the actions of a mob. And that could speak to the president, it may speak to the people who, who back the president as well, because, again, it's not at all clear that the law or the legal constraints on the presidency matter as much to them. And I think for John Roberts, legal constraints on any government official are critical to understand and enforce.
2: All right, Michael Gerhardt, author of several books, including Impeachment, What Everyone Needs to Know, and of course, most recently and quite famously, one of the four professors to testify before the House Judiciary Committee. Thank you for sharing some of your valuable time with us.
1: It's been good to be with you. Thank you.
2: That was Michael Gerhart, the Burton Craig University Distinguished Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina School of Law. That's a very long title in Chapel Hill. I left that part off. And first of all, I also have to say, thanks to the CEO of Connecticut Public Radio and Connecticut Public Everything, I guess, Mark Contreras, who actually prevailed upon prevailed upon Professor Gerhardt to actually come on this show. That's how we got him. Apparently, he has like an unpaid newspaper subscription bill that Contreras controls. Now. I'm not really sure what he did to do it, but it was good. And now we're going to do the second edition of a new thing we've been trying. We call it Factoids. It's the little things, both historical and current, that you might not know. And here's Kyone Wolf. <laughs>
3: Senator Josh Hawley, Republican from Missouri, says he'll introduce on Monday a measure to dismiss the impeachment if the House hasn't transmitted the articles. In 1988, Alcee Hastings of Florida was impeached and removed from office as a federal judge. Now he's a congressman and voted for the impeachment of Trump. <laughs> Rod Blagojevich, who was impeached and removed from the office of the governor of Illinois in 2009, wrote a New Year's Day essay arguing that modern Democrats would have impeached Abraham Lincoln back in the day. Blagojevich is currently studying history at the Federal Correctional Institute of Elwood, Colorado. Blagojevich was convicted of attempting to sell the Senate seat vacated by Barack Obama for campaign contributions. Trump has said he may commute Blagojevich's prison sentence. After his indictment and removal, Blagojevich appeared on... Celebrity Apprentice. Donald Trump is the first Republican president ever impeached. Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton were slash are Democrats. Nixon jumped before he could be pushed. Every president since Ronald Reagan, including Reagan, has been at least threatened with impeachment via resolutions in the House. A vote for removal requires a quorum of 51 senators present in the chamber, and then a two thirds vote of those present. You keep hearing the number 67, but that's only if all 100 senators are there. The next time a president faces impeachment, who will that person retain as counsel? A young lawyer intimately familiar with the process? Tiffany Trump is scheduled to graduate from Georgetown Law School this year. According to memos obtained by BuzzFeed News, former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort did not speak to any officials from the Trump administration while under investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller. But Manafort said he received back channel messages from the president passed along by Fox News host Sean Hannity. Former U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman said on MSNBC that the two Senate leaders during the Clinton impeachment, Tom Daschle and Trent Lott, took all senators into a private meeting without staff or press to hammer out rules for the trial. Disturbingly, Lieberman said this happened in 1989. Trump Defense Counsel Pat Cipollone has 10 children. This has been Factoids. I'm Kion Wolfe.
2: Okay, that was Factoids. We're going to take a break and then I mentioned at the top of the show, you're going to hear a terrific and interesting fashion critic, Vanessa Friedman, talking about the way clothes play a role in this whole process and we're going to introduce a new feature, an outside opinion piece from Bill Usman. <laughs> Welcome back. This is Pardon Me. I'm Colin McEnroe. This is a weekly show we do for as long as the quote unquote impeachment season lasts. Thanks for joining us. One thing you listeners may not know about me, I'm really fascinated by the semiotics of fashion, the semiotics of clothes. And the fact that I'm completely ignorant about this subject does not prevent me from having lots of opinions about it. But it's much better to have somebody who really does know something about this. Vanessa Friedman knows a lot about it. She's the fashion director and chief fashion critic for The New York Times. And she's been writing about the way clothes surface and are used and have meaning and have even traditions attached to them uh, throughout this impeachment process. So uh, we're going to be talking about some of the clothes that we've seen. So, first of all, welcome to our show.
4: Thanks, Con. Nice to talk to you.
2: And, and I mean, you know, we're going to be talking a lot. Probably about Nancy Pelosi because one of the fundamental unfairnesses of life is that w- women pick out clothes that seem to have meaning or to which meaning can be ascribed. Outside of President Trump's stupidly long red ties, there often aren't like a lot of things that you can say. I mean, we know that when President Obama wore a, wore a tan suit, he was almost impeached for that.
4: It practically broke the internet. <laughs>
2: yeah, so, so that's how limited men's fashion expressions are in these situations. Well, we should talk about Pelosi. And I mean, I I immediately wanted to have you on as a guest when I read your piece about pantsuits. She's made some pantsuit decisions here, and they do not exist in a vacuum, right? Pantsuits are a thing in the world of political communication.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, whether we like it or not, there is no getting away from the fact that we are an increasingly visual society. You know, we... See pictures, they go around the world before any of the words that are spoken at the events that those pictures represent, you know, get into our heads. And therefore, we are making snap judgments about people based on the choices they make about their appearance and the way they use that to communicate. And women in particular, I think, have more options in this regard than men do, although I wouldn't say that men don't also use their appearance to communicate. And, you know, I think it's time we faced that that reality and start trying to really understand how those choices are impacting our own opinions.
2: Right. So we've seen in, in the course of this process, both a white pantsuit and a black pantsuit, correct?
4: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. A black, I think it was a skirt suit. Yeah. You know, I mean, Nancy Pelosi is one of the smartest, most strategic politicians in Congress. You know, that's hands down true, whether it was, you know, her getting Obamacare through in her first into speaker or what she's doing now. And she is very aware of every tool at her disposal for, you know, changing people's minds, manipulating their thought processes, you know, leaning on their votes. And, you know, certainly her clothing choices are part of that.
2: So the white pantsuit, we've seen it not just from her and not just in the situation, but uh, mm-hmm. Tulsi Gabbard uh, mm-hmm. has, has worn it in, in the debates. Melania mm-hmm. Trump wore one to the 2018 <laughs> State of the Union. So uh, can you parse that a little bit? Is there, can we, can we get a specific kind of sure. semiotic take on that?
4: Well, I think ever since Hillary Clinton wore a white pantsuit to accept the Democratic nomination as the candidate for president the first female candidate of a major party for president, it has really take on outsized role in the public conversation as a symbol. And, you know, Mrs. Clinton at the time was specifically connecting herself to the suffragist movement, which had adopted white as one of its signature colors. And that actually is a through line that, you know, that was picked up by Geraldine Ferraro when she became the first female vice presidential candidate during the Mondale campaign, you know, and then all the way through Mrs. Clinton. And when Hillary wore that pantsuit, it really became a sign of women speaking up and women's empowerment. And, you know, there it was a Facebook group. It was a hashtag. It was wear white to vote. And ever since then, I think people have been hypersensitized to that symbolism. And, you know, you saw it again with Tulsi Gabbard. You see it, you saw it with Nancy Pelosi when she first stood, you know, at that historic moment in the hallway of Congress to announce that, you know, that they were going to move forward with the articles of impeachment. And there was no way that in those moments those women were not aware of the fact that those pictures were going to go down in history.
2: We also have to talk about the pin. Mm-hmm. and But maybe before we do that, let's listen to another rather powerful woman, Madeleine Albright, talking <laughs> about her pin choice.
0: So you've seen how after a meeting, the ambassadors go out and talk to the press. So all of a sudden, the camera zeroes in and says, and the reporter says, so why are you wearing the snake pin? I said, because Saddam Hussein compared me to an unparalleled serpent. And then I thought, well, this is fun. Um, So I went out and I bought a bunch of costume jewelry to uh, indicate what we were gonna do on any given day. So on good days I wore flowers and butterflies and balloons and on bad days a lot of horrible insects and carnivorous animals. And it was right after the first President Bush had said, read my lips, no new taxes. So I said, people said, what are we gonna do today? And I said, read my pins.
2: All right, so that's Madeline Albright. (laughs) Vanessa Friedman, Pelosi seemed to do the same thing on the day of the black skirt suit. There was another read Uh my pin moment. Tell us about that.
4: Well, she has a favorite pin, which she wears when she is very much in the public eye since she's had her second stint as speaker. And that is a, it's a congressional mace which is the symbol of the power of the House of Representatives. And she wears it on her lapel. It's from a Washington, D.C. jeweler called Anne Hand. I believe it was given to her as a gift. And it really has become a symbol of her power, of the power of the House, and what it has been, you know, given by the Constitution to do, and I think particularly now when there's so much discussion of the balance of power, of the three branches of government, of who can do what, and what really, you know, what the Constitution enables them, how it enables them to act, that pin has become the embodiment for the Speaker of exactly that responsibility.
2: Right. So, you know, and that ensemble was on the day that she opened the House debate on impeachment. The white was before that. The white seemed to be much more of a kind of shimmering, powerful, as you say, suffragist connected, but kind of Gandalfy, you know, thing. This, one of the things that she seemed to be doing on that day with that pin, with the black suit, was to say, this is a very sober, uh-huh. somber, significant thing. This isn't some kind of florid partisan exercise. This is closer to a funeral than it is to a wedding.
4: Well, I think certainly her office acknowledged the fact that she had chosen to wear a dark suit as, you know, as a reflection of the fact that it was such a serious and complicated and difficult and painful occasion, you know, that it was not something that the House was taking lightly or that she was taking lightly, that this really was dark days.
2: Yeah, and I mean, the other thing to note here is that uh, we can sort of listen to Albright or we can look at Pelosi and look at their use of these pins and stuff like that, but the truth is, as you say, they're working off an existing symbol set. I mean, the the idea that the house has a mace Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) is, is kind of weird and royalistic and crazy in and of itself.
4: Well, I think, you know, we all use visual symbols to represent you know, specific moments in time, power, to communicate, and we always have. It's a human reality, and this is simply another evolution of it, and as you say, a connection to the past. You know, the, the, the Constitution is a centuries-old document, and it is still relevant, and the, the powers bestowed within it are still meaningful to so many people, and if those are represented by, you know, a visual symbol, that, all the better,
2: Right. Well, I think also some people are just good at this, right? I mean, you're the fashion critic, you would know. But I mean, it seems like Pelosi's good at this. There's this famous, you also wrote about this burnt orange coat that you wore on another occasion. Maybe you can quickly remind people of that. But she seems to have a real sense of how to do this without calling too much attention to it.
4: Well, as I said, you know, I really think she is one of the canniest politicians, and she is smart enough to use every single tool that is available in the politician's toolbox to, you know, to make her point, to get her points across. And sometimes that's closed, and sometimes it's legislation, and sometimes it's, you know, wheeling and dealing with her fellow members of Congress, and sometimes it is, you know, coming out of a meeting with the president in a burnt orange coat where she has said, you know, do not push me around. I am a flame that's going to burn higher, and that's exactly what she did. And what, what is so powerful about Nancy Pelosi and how she's using clothes is not the fact that she's wearing clothes on their own, but that she is using them at the service of her words, her legislation, her greater point. And that is really what makes clothing powerful, is when it is working in concert with all this other substance.
2: Right. And when it's working in concert with everything else that you're doing, the substance of what you're saying, the way that you say it, you exactly. don't have to call as much attention to it. I mean, I think Melania Trump walking around in that jacket that said, I really don't care or whatever it said, that, that calls that's, calls way too much attention, even if we didn't, couldn't all quite agree on what it meant.
0: It's
4: also because it was confusing. Yeah. Because it was unclear what it meant, and therefore people were puzzled by it and weren't sure how to take it. I think when style does serve substance, it becomes a really, it makes a really powerful impact when style seems to exist in a world that's somewhat divorced from substance, it just creates a lot of puzzlement.
2: One of the things, I mean, I, people would hate me if I had you on the line and I didn't ask you this question. <laughs> what is going on with Jim Jordan? and He doesn't wear a jacket.
4: <laughs> yeah, well, he's, 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 he's said it. You know, he gave an interview where he said, I take my jacket off because I feel like I need to be, you know, like ready to rumble and it's somehow constricting. And so whenever he's, you know, out there being a pit bull for his caucus, he's ready to, you know roll up his sleeves and get down to it. And that is the messaging, and it's coming across, you know, whether he's yelling or just jacketless.
2: Right, although, I mean, there's the message you send and the way the message is read, you know. I mean, to me, he looks kind of like a vice principal, you know, or something like that. I mean, it it doesn't necessarily. Usually the person with his or her jacket off in certain situations has a subsidiary level of importance. At least that's the way (laughs) that <laughs> that I that I like the really important people. They're wearing their suits.
4: Well, I think it's become a signature of his, and you know, when you do it consistently enough, then you do you know it's pretty easy to read in the eye of the beholder.
2: Right. I mean, so we were talking about how w- women are the people who are analyzed this way, but mm-hmm. in fact, people like Jordan are. I think you know, Twitter kind of went nuts when George Kent, George one of the w- Kent witnesses,
4: the yeah. yeah, you know, Waldman was you know, in his military uniform. You know, I think that men are absolutely as cognizant of the message they're sending with their clothes and as strategic about it. It's just that there are less options for them. And I think that people tend to get more worked up, understandably, over any discussion of women's clothing because of all the kind of historic stereotypes and prejudices that come along with it. But I, you know, I honestly think it'd be a mistake to overlook the choices that, men in the public eye are making and the impacts they have.
2: Right. Well, I mean, let's just hear Colonel Vindman talking to Representative Chris Stewart, who was questioning him Mm -hmm. about that uniform.
1: When ranking member Nunes referred to you as Mr. Vindman, you quickly corrected him and wanted to be called Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. Do you always insist on civilians calling you by your rank? Mr. Stewart, um, Representative Stewart, I'm in uniform wearing my military rank. Uh, I just thought it was
2: appropriate to uh, stick with that. Well, I, I'm sorry, Mr. Stewart. Meant no, he, I'm I sure you meant no disrespect. because I, I, I don't believe he did. But um, the attacks that I've uh, had in the press and Twitter have either uh, marginalized me as a military officer,
1: well, uh, or listen. That I just, I'm just, I'm just telling you that the ranking member net met no disrespect to you. I, I believe that.
2: I mean, men use certain kind of clothing either as status markers or as armor, or or I guess maybe both?
4: I think all of the above, you know, and they use them to communicate personality types. You know, certainly the president, as you pointed out with his tie, but also with his MAGA hat, you know, has been an absolutely strategic user of clothing, a symbol. You know, an impeachment is in some ways a theater, right, that's playing out in the public eye. You know, and the people who appear in it are dressing play their parts. And, you know, certainly Colonel Vinman was, you know, very conscious of wearing his uniform because of communicating the seriousness of his position, the respect where he was coming from, you know, as a way to remind people of his own sense of responsibilities and his own professional role and why he was testifying. And I thought it was a very, you know, effective choice.
2: All right. Well, listen, this has been great. If stuff comes up in the trial, we know where to find you. <laughs> but Vanessa Freeman is the fashion director and chief fashion critic for the New York Times. Uh, she's written about all this stuff. You should make a point of reading what she writes in the future about all this stuff. But thanks for joining us today.
4: It was a pleasure. Thank you.
2: The last item on the agenda this week is an essay from Bill Useman, who is professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. I always just think that he's Bill Useman. I mean, he's such a fixture on our show at this point. Does he need to have a title? But anyway, here's Bill Useman with some of his thoughts.
0: In 1985, an NYU professor named Neil Postman published a book about television's impact on American society that he called Amusing Ourselves to Death. His argument was that the driving imperative of television is entertainment. All of television, even the news, is geared toward emotional spectacles meant to capture the audience's attention. And Postman contended that television was so dominant in American life that entertainment had become the primary value in other aspects of our society, including, crucially, politics. Postman died in 2003 So he never wrote a follow-up examining how the internet, and social media, and smartphones for that matter, have only amplified our desire for constant amusement and distraction. But in 2017, Postman's son wrote an editorial provocatively titled, My Dad Predicted Trump in 1985. Andrew Postman points out that the central thesis of his father's book was illustrated through a comparison of two dystopian science fiction novels. George Orwell's 1984 and Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Postman explained this in an eloquent but terrifying passage. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. So, fast forward to 2016. America anoints a television character as the single most powerful human being in the world. Think about it. With no previous background in public service, Donald Trump was best known as a a coarse reality television show CEO who took delight in firing people on a whim. So since then, many commentators have remarked that all of this seems unreal. And several have even written about Trump as a product of television. And it it is hard to deny that he performs like a stand-up comedian at his endless and ongoing concert, (laughs) I mean political rallies. And his audience joyfully gives in to the engrossing spectacle of a president mocking and insulting his foes while hinting at violence. And it's not just his supporters who are entranced. None of us seem able to look away. He's come to dominate the culture like no other president before him. And as the months passed, and he continued to act like a television anti-hero, beholden to no rules or limits, impeachment seemed to become inevitable. But. We should remember that impeachment is not simply a political or judicial process. It's also a media spectacle. There's a real risk that all of this will be treated as just a very special episode of the Trump show, one timed perfectly for the post-holiday winter doldrums when we're seeking any sort of amusement. As this process unfolds, we'd be well served to keep Neil Postman's warning in mind. But I've also been thinking about another astute cultural critic who's no longer with us poet and musician Gil Scott Heron singing about a previous president who first became famous through the entertainment industry you go give them liberals hell Ronnie this country wants nostalgia they want to go back as far as they can and yesterday was the day of our cinema heroes Riding to the rescue at the last possible moment The day of the man in the white hat Or the man who always came to save America At the last moment This This is how it feels again But it's not a movie And it's not just a television show It is our real lives. We can't wait for the hero to save us. And we can't escape by just turning it off.
2: That's episode five of Pardon Me. I'm Colin McEnroe. The show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McPants. And thanks this week and every week for until the end of time and history to Eugene Amatruda. We're on Connecticut Public Radio on Saturdays at noon. That may be how you're listening to me right now. which case it's almost one, and we're wherever you get your podcast, whenever you want us. And yeah, it's good if you like leave little, you know, even just if you write a note on a piece of paper and attach it to the string of a kite and send that kite up into the air saying, listen to Pardon Me, it's the best damn impeachment show ever. If you did that, that would be great. Or if you (laughs) you rated us on iTunes, I guess that would be good too, but not as good as the kite thing. I'm going to really encourage people this week to do that. But right now also... All I have time left to do is to say thank you for listening.